As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the living word. To whom else can we go? For he alone has the words of eternal life. And as we listen to his word, may Christ's spirit write its message on our hearts and feed our souls with its nourishing truth. In this time, speak to us of eternal things, so that hearing the promises of Scripture, we may hope and be lifted above all the darkness and distress of this life into the light and peace of your presence, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis, chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 2. And probably on almost every single Bible, you'll find that on page 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And we want to read the first three verses of chapter 2 as we think about the blessing of Sabbath rest together this evening. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning our reading at verse 1. And let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, I don't know if you look forward to sermons on the fourth commandment. Um, I know when we were going through earlier in the book of Mark and we came to Christ as Lord of the Sabbath, I heard from more than one person, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the Sabbath, we're really going to get hammered. Um, And so, you know, I think this is a, a difficult commandment for many people. I think if you ask Christians, generally speaking, they would say, yes, we believe in the Ten Commandments. And you would say, great. But if you ask the question that question 103 asks, how many Christians could give a good answer? Right? Question 103 asks, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? Um, How do you think people would do on asking that question or answering that question? Um, All the other commandments, we can see the importance of them. I think as we go through, you wouldn't have to argue with someone why idolatry is a bad thing. Uh, why murder is a bad thing, uh, why there should be a law about that. But maybe when we get to the fourth commandment, we can struggle to articulate exactly in what sense does this commandment still apply. Um, Maybe we could just do a test for ourselves. How often when we pray our own personal prayers of confession, do we confess to the Lord violating the Lord's day? Um, Is the fourth commandment ever something that we think about or confess as a sin? How do we think about the fourth commandment? How does it live in our lives? I think this is one of the most sort of misunderstood commandments, one of the commandments that people have the most difficult time really reckoning with. And in one sense, that makes it kind of sad because this is one of the great commandments that we're given. Uh, What does the Lord demand of us in the fourth commandment? What does he come and command us to do in the fourth commandment? It's to rest. It's to rest and find refreshment in him. Uh, So in a sense, it's kind of sad that one of the commandments that is the most marvelous of commands that our God gives us um, becomes for us one of the most misunderstood. 
um, one of the maybe that's hardest to articulate. And I think that's probably in a sense because we tend to make two mistakes when we come to the fourth commandment. Uh, One, I think, is to say that it's been entirely abolished. There have been people who say, well, you know, this this commandment really has no force left uh, in the life of God's people. It's sort of been, you know, really done away with by the coming of Christ. Uh, But then, you know, that should draw us back to what we thought about from Matthew 5 last week. Didn't Jesus say he did not come to abolish the law? He didn't come to relax the law. Um, He wants the law taught. He says anyone who doesn't teach these things will be least in the kingdom of God. The purpose of Christ's coming was not to abolish commandments. Uh, So I think that's one mistake we make is that we think that somehow this is in no force at all. And the other mistake we make, I think, in coming to the fourth commandment is stressing one aspect of the commandment at the expense of the other. Um, One of the things that we want to see over and over again as we go through the law of God, the law of God always comes to us and and says, here is the sin that is to be avoided, and here is the love that's to be shown. Every commandment does that either by commanding not to do something as the primary focus and then coming along and saying, but this is what's to be done in its place, Um, or to start by saying this is what's to be done and this is what's to be avoided. But either way, the commandments always come and say, here is the, the vice to be avoided, here is the virtue to be put on, here is the sin to be put off, here is the love to be put on. And I think sometimes when we come to the fourth commandment, the mistake we make is stressing only one side of that. Uh, Maybe you break out in a cold sweat when you see Sabbath in the bulletin because you're ready for all the things that must not be done. Uh, You're just getting prepared to be loaded down with that aspect of the commandment. And there have been times where we've so stressed what may not be done on the Lord's Day that we lose sight of the love that's included in the commandment. Uh, the glories of it. And then sometimes we make the mistake on the other end. We're so not wanting to talk about what's not to be done that we only talk about the love that's to be shown and we don't think at all about the other aspect of the commandment. Uh, But the commandment comes to us as a real blessing from God. And we don't want to be people who misemphasize it or lose sight of the blessing that it is for us uh, because it's a reminder of what God's purpose is for us in, his, in our lives, what he made this world for, what he redeemed his people for, that we might enter into his rest. Um, and if the difficulty of this command were to cause us to put it out of our minds, then we wouldn't contemplate on the greatness of our God who has made us and made this world that we as his people might enter into his rest with him. That that's what God is teaching us and giving us a pattern for life that he created the world with um, and something that's been renewed by the redeeming work of his son. But this shows us, this command in particular shows us the goodness of our God. That what does he want above all for his people? What is the destiny that he has made us for? It's this, to enter into his rest. And I think when we think about it that way, we can begin to see the glories of this commandment and hopefully not when we see it in the bulletin every time, become overwhelmed with the sense of, oh no, what is going to, what guilt trip am I going to be put under today? 
but rather to say, let's think about the goodness of this command and the glories that it shows forth of God's purpose in our creation for causing us to enter into his rest. And so I want to think about that Sabbath rest of God tonight, sort of an overview of Sabbath rest. And then actually the next two times we get together, I want to talk about God's rest and entering that rest. So I'm preparing. You're going to see Sabbath a couple more times. Don't lose heart. Take courage. The Lord is there too. Um, When we talk about God's rest and how we enter that rest, it's a glorious way of thinking about the Sabbath as it's held out to us in the Scriptures. Because who of us tonight doesn't need rest? Right? Um, It's a little different for a pastor now because my rest is almost here because Sunday's almost over. Not that I don't enjoy being here with you and and, and not privileged to do this job God has given to me, but it's flipped my week from what it used to be. Because when I used to be sitting where you were sitting, I was thinking about the end of my rest. Because I was about to go away from the house of God and back, you know, go home, try to get things done to get ready to go out into the work week the next week again. Um, Maybe more, more than any, at any other time in the rhythm of our lives, we need to contemplate rest on Sunday night um, when we're thinking about what we have before us. So that's what I want to do is kind of think about God's rest together uh, from Genesis 2. And I think one just think about two aspects of that uh, this evening, the Sabbath rest of creation and the Sabbath rest of redemption. How the Lord brings to mind the Sabbath rest that he's made the world with and the Sabbath rest that he has remade in the sending of his son into the world to save sinners. So that's how I want to just think about uh, this passage and this catechism question tonight. The Sabbath rest of creation and the Sabbath rest of redemption. Um, that's two points, but it'll be okay. Um, that's what I want to think about, that Sabbath rest. Because right here at the very beginning, that's how the week ends of creation. Um, sometimes when we talk about creation, we talk about it in terms of six days, right? What is your view of the six days of creation? That's how we sometimes talk. I take this six-day view. I take this six-day view. And it's always six days this, six days that. And there are seven days here, right? There are seven days in this story. And maybe it's because we don't talk about it as a creation day because we recognize that the seventh day was a different day. The seventh day was not like the other days Um, because it wasn't a day of work. It was a day of rest. Um, That that point is really driven home in the way the, the first couple verses here are written. They stand out to us as being different, intentionally so. Do you see that repetition of the seventh day? In chapter 2, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Um, That's done for a purpose, That, that threefold repetition of the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. And it's actually reinforced in Hebrew because each one of those sentences in which those words appear are seven-word sentences in Hebrew. So it's seventh day, seventh day, seventh day in seven words, seven words, seven words. 
Now, we can't do it exactly the same way in English, but on the seventh day, God finished his work. On the seventh day, God rested from his work, and therefore God blessed the Sabbath day, seventh day, and made it holy. Even the way these passages are put together stand out to us saying there's something different about this day. There's something important happening here. One Old Testament commentator said, this construction draws attention to the special character of the Sabbath. In this way, form and content emphasize the distinctiveness of the seventh day. Now, two of those three statements or sentences are sort of more easy for us to wrap our minds around to the extent that we can. It was the day God finished his work. We can understand something about what it is to finish our work, right? That's not beyond us. Uh, We can understand in a certain sense what it means that God blessed the day and made it holy. Uh, We understand what a blessing is. We understand what it is to make something holy, to set it apart, to consecrate it for a particular purpose. We understand those statements. But maybe the statement we have the most trouble really wrapping our mind around is that God rested on the seventh day. I can understand finishing your work. I can understand blessing and making it holy. But what exactly does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? As the Old Testament continues to contemplate this Sabbath rest, it only makes the the situation deeper, only deepens the question for us about what it means that God rests. Think about what is said in Exodus 31, 17. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Doesn't that just deepen the problem? What does it mean that God rests, and then what does it mean that God is refreshed? Um, It's brought to bear as it relates to other things on the Sabbath day. And in in those cases, we can understand rest and refreshment. We can think of Exodus 23, 12. Six days you shall do all your work, but the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Now that makes sense to us because we know that we need rest, that animals need rest. Creatures have limited reserves of physical resources. You cannot go 24-7 without breaking down. Right? We understand why creatures need rest and refreshment. Why does the Creator need rest and refreshment? Because God is not limited in His resources. God is infinite in his resources, eternal in his resources. He can speak the whole world into existence, and that takes nothing out of him. It doesn't expend anything that's in him. It's a testimony to the power of our God that to speak everything that is into creation is not an effort for him. In that way, Genesis serves as the ultimate anti-myth. Because every other creation myth involves God struggling with elements or struggling with powers and trying to bring the oceans into subjection and bring the world into subjection. It's always a struggle story. So when the Bible comes along and says, here is a God who just says, be, and it springs into existence. 
He just commands the light, and it is. And he commands the things to come into being, and they do. He speaks, and it's done. It jumps into existence at his command. It's the ultimate anti-myth. That's the power of our God. He does not struggle to create. It doesn't take anything out of him. So if he's infinite in his resources, and it can't take anything out of him to make things, why does he need to rest? How can he be refreshed? How are we to understand these things? How are we to understand this speaking of a God with eternal, limitless resources in spiritual power? Um, Well, when in doubt, listen to your parents, boys and girls. So I'm going to listen to my dad and what he says about this. This is what he says. If God cannot need rest and refreshment, then what is the meaning of the Sabbath day? We can only conclude that God spoke about himself as he does in Genesis 2 in order to teach us about ourselves. If we are made in his image, then he presents his rest so that we can know about our own. He does not need rest, but we do. He is accommodating his revelation of his creating work to us and our needs. He speaks of himself in a way that serves as a model for us. What is God saying in the creation? You are made in my image. I'm a working God. You are to be a working people. I do the work of a creator. You're to do the work of a creature. But you're made in my image. And if I rest on a day, you need to rest on a day. God is speaking this way for us. Showing us something about who we are by the way he speaks and what he's designed this world for. And what has he beautifully given to us in this pattern of creation that he has established? He's given us a day-to-day reminder of his purpose for us in our lives. That he has given us all work to do. We all have work that we are called to do in this world. And we are to do that work in six days. He's given us six days to do all the work that he's given us to do. And then just as he did his work in his six days and rested on the seventh day and was refreshed, so we are to do our work six days and to find rest and refreshment on the seventh day that he has made holy. We are his image bearers, male and female, made in his image and likeness. And we are to do our work and then rest and be refreshed on the day he's given to us. A day that was blessed and made holy for that purpose. It's not just physical rest, though we do need that. But it's a spiritual rest. It's a resting with God. Where we stop doing our work, right? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day we get to do our other kind of work. The work that, properly speaking, is not your work, but our work. And what is the work that God wants from us on that seventh day? It's rest. It's to rest with Him and in Him. That's what God wants us to do on that day, to rest in Him 
and to find refreshment. He wants that to be a pattern of our lives where it's, it's built in and baked in to how we live life in this world. That we spend a day doing our holy work, which is the work of rest. That's what worship is. Now, I realize that we live in a fallen world, and this isn't always a rest, restful, refreshing day for everyone. Not particularly if you had to raise little children and wrangle them in the pew. My mom used to say I would laugh sometimes when we'd, say, when we'd sing the hymn, O Day of Rest and Gladness. She'd say, you know, this is the day where, you know, where's your shoes? And how did, how did you get bare feet all of a sudden? And, you know, why aren't you dressed and in the car, you know, and just be quiet in the pew? And it's not always a day of rest and gladness. But what is it holding out to us? It's a day where we can come into the presence of our God and be reminded throughout all of the restlessness and craziness of life in this world that this world is not all there is. That this world is not all that we are. It would be a sad thing if, the, if our work six days a week was all we are. Um, what God has given us is a day to remind ourselves this isn't all we are, what we do in the world. It's not all we are. We are also His people, the sheep of His pasture. He's given us a day to come and to do our holy work of resting and being refreshed by having our God speak to us and being able to sing our praises back to Him together. Worship is our, the way we rest, the way we find refreshment for our souls. And so God has built this into the world for us. It's interesting to think that Adam and Eve needed that even before the fall. Even when their work was not a toil or a trouble caused by the fall, they still needed a day to rest from their labor and to spend time just being refreshed in the presence of their God, to enter into His rest for that day. And in doing that for us, what God showed us was another important truth. He wanted that to be the kind of day-to-day pattern of our lives, that we do our work and then we rest in him because he was also doing in that, what he was doing in that was showing us what the whole purpose of our life is. To do this work that he's given to us and then to enter into eternal rest. This was not just holding out a pattern week to week for them in the creation. It was also showing something of God's eternal purpose, the purpose for the whole of their lives was that they would do their work and one day that work would be finished and they would enter into the rest of their God. It was showing them God's holistic purpose, His purpose for their whole lives, which was to do their work, to finish their work, and to enter into His rest. To enter into a rest that was permanent. To enter into a refreshment that was consummate, right? a refreshment that would never end, a rest that would be everlasting, to cease to be the people of our work and to be solely devoted to our holy work, to enter into his rest forever. That's what God made Adam and Eve to do in creation. He held out to them that hope. Do your work, and when the six days are over and your work is completed, you will enter into the rest of your God. It was not just a pattern for week-to-week life, you see. It was a way to think about all of life. 
a way to think about their purpose on the planet. Do your work and you'll enter into the rest that's held out to the people of God. But what was the problem of that original creation? They failed to do their work. Right? They were made in the image of God who worked his six days and then entered into his rest. And they were given six days of labor to do. And then with the promise that they would enter into their rest. But what was the problem? They failed to do their work. They failed to do the work that God had given them. God always does his work. But they failed. And you see what the horror of that failure held out to them. If we've failed in our work, does that mean we will never enter into his rest? Right, that was was where it all came crashing down for human beings as image bearers of God. We've failed in our work. And if we haven't done our work, how will we enter into the rest of our God? This is the the fundamental human problem that's raised by the fall. That's what the curse represents. It's a death, physical, spiritual, eternal. It means not entering into God's rest. That's the crisis that came. Sabbath rest was held out in creation, but it was lost by our own failures. We failed to do our work and enter into that rest. And so how wonderful that when the rest of creation fails and God's people cannot hope to enter into rest by doing our work, God holds out the hope of a Sabbath rest that can be brought about by redemption. You have failed to do your work and enter into the rest of your God. So I will send another person who will come to do the work that needs to be done so that you can enter into rest. It was promised already there in Genesis right after it was lost. Right Right when the hope of rest seemed to be forever frustrated. God came and said, I will raise up a son of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. I will make enmity between you and he will crush the head of the serpent. It was the first announcement of the promise that there was someone else who can bring rest where that initial rest failed. A Sabbath rest that would be brought about not by the work of man as he was created, but the work of a second man who would come as a redeemer. A much harder work than Adam had to do. Adam had every advantage in his work. It was a perfect world. He was surrounded only by perfect people. Um, It was the perfect situation, a garden in which to do his work. Jesus came into a very different kind of world. The Sabbath rest of redemption was brought about by Jesus. Boys and girls, you knew that before I even said it. Uh, But I don't think I actually said it, so let me say it now. That's who comes to redeem the world. Jesus comes. Jesus comes into the world as a second Adam, as a final Adam. To do what the first Adam failed to do. And his job is much harder. Because he comes into a world that is broken and fallen. Where he has no true allies in this world. 
No one to really help him do his work. Right? There are even times that his closest friends, you would say, well, doesn't he have those 12 people to help him do his work? One of them was a devil. And even one of the better ones, he still had to say on occasion, get behind me, Satan. Right? His work of redemption was much more difficult. But he did his work. Right? That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes as the second Adam with work to do from the Father, which is to be a redeemer, to bring rest to the world that's broken, to bring rest to the people of God that they were never able to find on their own. And what is the good news of the gospel as Jesus comes into the world? He does his work. Six days he labored and did all the work his father had given him to live a perfect life, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he did it every day of his life, every moment of his life. He did the work the father had given him to do, loving him with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself. He did that every day of his life. He lived a perfect life. And what also was the work that his father had given him to do? That he volunteered to do when he came into the world. To live a perfect life. And then instead of entering into the rest that he deserved. Dying for the rebellion of his people. Six days he labored and did all his work. And then he went to the cross. Part of that work was to go and to die for sinners, to die for all of that rebellion, for all of that wickedness that sentenced people to never enter his rest. He deserved to go to rest. Instead, he went to the cross for our sin and for our rebellion so that he might not be the only one to enter into rest, so that we would enter into rest with him. He lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he was buried on the seventh day. The last Sabbath that was a seventh day he spent in the grave. And then what happened? He rose from the dead. And what does his resurrection from the dead signal? He has entered into the rest of his father. Here is the man who came and worked redemption, did his six days of labor, and this is the seventh day when he's raised from the dead. And he enters into that rest. He was raised spiritual, incorruptible, indestructible, glorious. That was where the rest of mankind was secured. That's where the rest of mankind began. He had remade the world that was broken. And the first step of its remaking was that the Son of God came alive from the tomb. In a resurrected body, in resurrected glory. That was the first day of the Sabbath rest of redemption. And so is it any surprise that Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, having finished his work, blessed and hallowed that day? 
the first day of the week, the day he rose from the dead, the day that remade the world into a new creation with the hope of rest that could be found for the people of God. Um, Just as this world was made by the Father through the Son, right? John said there wasn't anything made that was not made through him. Um, He was the one, Hebrews 1 tells us, through whom the world was made. The Father made the world through him, with and through him. Is it any surprise that the Father remade the world with and through him? It was mankind through his faithlessness that lost the rest of God. Is it any surprise that a second Adam, a final Adam, a faithful image bearer would come and restore things? Do you see the perfection of God's redeeming work? Here is the great remaking of all things. And Jesus, who came into the world, came in as the Lord of the Sabbath. And he remade the Sabbath for us. Sometimes people ask, why, would, why if we talk about the rest this way, why, is, why did it get moved? When did it get moved from Saturday to Sunday? Um, well, because everything Jesus did on Sunday signaled the importance of that day. If you look at the most frequent appearances of the risen Christ that are recorded in Scripture, they happen on the first day of the week. On Sunday, that's when Jesus appears to his disciples. It's on the first day of the week, um, the day that he rose from the dead. All four Gospels record that for us. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1 through 3, Luke 24, 1, John 20, verse 1, and 20, verse 9. Jesus appears to his disciples on the first day of the week when they're gathered together. When is the Holy Spirit poured out on the church? The great event of Pentecost, when does that happen? It happens on the first day of the week when the disciples are gathered together. That's when Jesus pours out his Spirit on the church on the first day of of the week. Um, that's why we call it the Lord's Day, because the Lord has consecrated this day. Now, that's how the apostles spoke about their work. What I received from the Lord, I also delivered unto you. That's how the apostles talked about their work. Um, someone said, We call it the Lord's Day for the same reason we call Holy Communion the Lord's Supper. Why is it the Lord's Supper? Because He instituted it. And he gave it to his disciples and what, as to his apostles. And what he gave to his apostles, they delivered to us. Right? When Paul says he's preaching the gospel, he doesn't say, this is my gospel. He says, I delivered to you as what is first importance. What I received. Right? I receive it from Jesus and I give it to you. That's my job. That's how he described the gospel. It's the Lord's gospel. That's how he described the supper. It's the Lord's supper. What I received from the Lord, I also delivered unto you. And just so, it's the Lord's day. That's why John calls it the Lord's day in Revelation 1.10. The Lord has given that day through his apostles. And we see the apostles doing that throughout Scripture in the Word. Right? Acts 20, verse 7, we read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Here is the church gathered on the first day of the week, hearing the preaching. Paul talks to them, preaches a long sermon to them on the first day of the week. 
They break bread together. That's the Lord's Supper. That's all happening on the first day of the week. The apostles are gathering the church on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So they're gathered together. They hear the preaching, the breaking of the bread. They're offering offerings. They're offering offerings. Those were things that were done on the Sabbath day. And so now the offerings are to be collected on the first day of the week, on the Sabbath day. You see how Christ through his apostles is delivering this practice. It's borne testimony to in the earliest writings of church fathers that the church gathered on the first day of the week. Christians tell us that's when they gathered on the first day of the week. Even non-Christians tell us that's when they gathered. There were a lot of non-Christians early on who thought, these people all must be sun worshipers. Why are they sun worshipers? Because they're always getting together on Sunday. That day where people get together, must get together to worship the sun. That's what they're all about. It's, it's the witness of the, of the world to the truth that Jesus handed down through his apostles in the word. That this is the day. This is the day the Lord has made by his resurrection. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because it speaks of a rest that's been accomplished. Not a rest that we hoped would be accomplished and was failed. Right? Not the promise of rest that may come if we faithfully do our work, but the rest that says, no, he came and did his work. It's done. He's risen from the dead. He's entered into the rest of his Father. He's brought us all into that rest together. By faith in him, we've entered into rest. And that should be a relief to us as we are looking at our watches and saying, it's almost over And then I have to go home and we have to try to get the kids to bed and maybe just try to take a beat for myself to catch my breath before I go back into another week of work. To go forth having really experienced the rest and the refreshment of this day that reminds us of the rest that's been accomplished. That we will not fail to enter it because he has not failed us. The second Adam has come and done his work. He's rested. He's entered into heaven. Remember years ago reading G. Campbell Morgan on the ascension. And he said, "Here, when Jesus comes into heaven, here is the first human being to ever cross the threshold of heaven, body and soul, by his own right. Who has to ask no mercy to be there who is there, body and soul, risen from the dead. And I love how he said, he steps into the light of heaven and he casts no shadow there. Why? Because he's finished. He did it. He did the work. He earned the rest. He's entered into the rest. And so when we meet the first day of the week, we are remembering and being refreshed by the fact that rest has been earned. We don't have to earn it. And we meet this day remembering that Jesus has hallowed this day by his redeeming work. Uh, William Ames put it this way. 
Christ has constituted this day because on this day he rested from his own afflictions and labors by which he renewed the ruined world. On Sunday, the creation of a new world or of a world to come wherein all things are made new was completed. And God in Christ rising from the dead ceased and rested from his greatest work. Just as in the beginning God rested from his work and blessed and hallowed the day wherein he rested, so also it is right that the very day wherein Christ rested from his labors should be hallowed. And so we are given this every day, every week reminder that we go forth as a people who have been given rest by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we go with that reminder of what our whole life is about. That there is a permanent rest that's waiting the people of God. Right? Just as there is a six-day work and rest pattern that is put into the world to remind us of our pattern for living, so also there was a reminder in that there is a rest coming for the people of God. And this is the day we remember that one day we will enter into that rest. That rest without an evening or a morning. Right? So many of the creation days we read, there was evening and there was morning the day. There's no evening or morning on the Sabbath day. There's a permanent rest held out to the people of God. There's a consummate rest. And that's what also we are being reminded of. That we're not always going to live in this world in this pattern. It's not always going to be like this. We get, you know, brief glimpses into heaven and then we go right back out in the world to be back down into it. We get the little glimpse of the mountaintop and then we got to go right back in to the crooked and depraved generation amongst which we live. And what the Sabbath reminds us of is it's not always going to be like that. The Lord Jesus has entered into his rest. All those who believe in him have entered into that spiritual Sabbath in him that will one day become an eternal Sabbath for the people of God. We enjoy something now of that spiritual Sabbath. One person said, the peace of conscience enjoyed by believers and cessation from sinful works in which they ought to seek after through the whole course of their lives. It's one of the great things about this catechism answer. As we conclude in thinking about it, what does it remind us of? There's a spiritual rest into which we have already entered that speaks of an eternal rest to come. Right? Every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways Let the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. What we have a foretaste now of in Christ, we will one day have fully and forever. When someone said, being received into heaven most perfectly freed both from sin and from the labors and troubles of this life, we rest eternally in God. A heavenly rest under which eternal happiness is usually shadowed forth. The happiness you feel at the end of a long sermon will one day just be gloriously expanded. Right? The happiness of spending time with God will be expanded. Um, 
I used to struggle with this, boys and girls, just in closing, because I would think, does heaven mean we're going to be in church all the time? Is that what heaven is? Well, this is only a picture of what heaven is. What is heaven, really? It's entering into the rest of God and leaving the trials and the work of this world behind and entering only into that holy work, which is ours. And our God is so glorious and so great that the work he's given us to do throughout all of eternity is to rest and be refreshed in him. What a glorious God who's made us for that purpose and when that purpose was frustrated by us, made another way by his son so that we would not miss an eternity of rest with our God. I hope you go forth into the week with that hope of the Sabbath rest that our Redeemer has secured for us by his death on the cross. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the rest and refreshment that we receive from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How thankful we are to be reminded of what he has secured by his life and death, that what he has earned by his, by his life and his death and his resurrection cannot be lost. It's a rest into which he has entered and into which all those who believe in him will enter. And so we pray that all of us here would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work and find rest for our souls. And as we go forth into the week, Lord, may we carry the assurance of that rest with us and try to begin in this life the eternal Sabbath that is coming and that soon. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.